podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. I'm Frank Morano. Welcome to The Racket Report, the podcast that takes you inside the world of organized crime from every perspective. And in previous editions, we have spoken with victims of organized crime, and we've spoken certainly with a lot of journalists who've covered the issue of organized crime. However, our next guest kind of fits the description of somebody that was a family member of a victim of organized crime and also was an incredible, is an incredible journalist, but did a really, really remarkable piece that at times reads like a thriller novel and at other times a historical documentary exploring the incredible world of not only her family history, but of the mafia in Wisconsin. Uh, I'll tell you, of all the stories related to the mafia that I've read recently, I don't think any have stayed with me and kept me as riveted as the one written by Mary Spacuza. The headline being, My Cousin Was Killed by a Car Bomb in Milwaukee, a mob boss was the top suspect. Now I'm looking for answers. Very pleased uh, p- to be joined by Mary Spacuza, an investigative reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Mary, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Frank. So um, f- before we discuss this story and the incredible amount of work that you must have put into it and the incredible amount of time, tell folks a little bit about your uh, your job with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. What kind of stories do you typically report on? Um, so I'm an investigative reporter with Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, but my background is really more in political reporting. Since I moved back to Wisconsin in 2009, I covered the state capitol, I covered city hall, and I am not typically doing first-person pieces. So this was um, a very different experience for me. Oh, I, I can imagine. So uh, what did you know? This piece deals with your cousin. Uh, technically, I guess it's your father's first cousin. So it's your first cousin once removed. It deals with your cousin and your cousin's death in the 1970s. Growing up, what did you know about your t- your cousin's death and the circumstances surrounding it? Virtually nothing. Um, I was about four years. I was four years old when he was killed. He was car bombed. And it was something that my family just did not and would not talk about. So I heard almost nothing about it. I remember my father would say things like, uh, don't fall in with the wrong crowd. You know what happened to Cousin Augie? Don't gamble. You don't want to end up like Cousin Augie. You don't talk back to the wrong person. You know what happened to Cousin Augie? And I was like, I don't know what happened to Cousin Augie because he won't tell us. It was I could tell it was something bad and I could tell it was something he didn't want to talk about. And it was clearly like on his mind, but it it was not um, it was not something that the family 
would ever discuss. And which if you know Italian families and you know, like Italian family reunions or uncles and aunts, like you get together and it's just everybody talking about everything, talking over each other. And I heard so many different family stories about my grandparents and relatives, but I don't remember the name Augie Pomazano ever being even uttered. So this was very much a verboten subject among your family. Did you get the sense that it was because they were embarrassed or because they wanted to protect you somehow about some unsavory aspects of uh, of life and maybe even your family history? I think all of the above. I think that there was um, a, a desire to protect us, a lot of nervousness around organized crime and um, fear of you didn't want to um, say anything that might get you or your family hurt or killed. I think that there was a lot of um, just kind of shame, discomfort, sadness where um, you didn't want, like people didn't want to think, oh, you're a bad family or you're somehow sketchy. And I think there was a lot of victim blaming that went on back then in the seventies when I was little of, well, if this bad thing happened to you, you must've asked for it, or you must've done something to deserve it. And I think it was, um, yeah, I think some victim blaming. And I also think, I know my dad was extremely proud of his Italian heritage and his Sicilian heritage. And we all were raised with that pride. And I, I think there was also a you don't want to perpetuate stereotypes that all Sicilians are in the mafia because they're obviously not, or all Sicilians are somehow gangsters, which they're obviously not. And so I think sometimes people just weren't sure how to talk about it. And so the default was just silence. Uh, well, that makes sense. I can certainly understand that from, from their perspective. So when did you make the decision to investigate your cousin Augie's death and why did you make that decision? It was kind of a long time coming. I think I remember watching the news when I was um, young, a, a young girl or a maybe preteen and hearing them talking about my cousin and my cousin's murder and running into the kitchen and being like, Mom, they're talking about Cousin Augie on the news. And her face just kind of fell because she looked kind of horrified. But, she, you know, and I wasn't excited that they were talking about his murder. I was just like, oh, my gosh, this relative that I know nothing about is on the news. Or they're talking about him on the news. But then again, it kind of fell back to silence. And then um, I was working, I, I was going to um, school and, and studying journalism at one point, And some of my classmates said, you know, have you ever thought about, like, you've mentioned your cousin a few times, have you ever thought about making a documentary or researching that. And it was just kind of like, Oh God, no, I would, <laughs> you know, not that, like I can ask questions of, to strangers about anything, but I can't ask my family about that. And uh, then I tried asking, you know, I, I tried asking my father and my aunt, my last surviving aunt of um, my dad was the youngest of 13 and she didn't want to talk about it either. And then she passed away. And I think um, I started to get worried that as a lot of the old timers or the people who knew those stories were dying, that the stories would die with them. And I didn't want that to happen. I'm kind of kicking myself for not bringing out a recorder and, you know, bringing it mm. to family reunions with me because I could have gotten so many great stories on tape. Um, but I, I kind of felt like it was now or never. And when you think of, um, some of the guys who investigated there, 
investigated organized crime back in the day, the, uh, you know, the Joe Stones and the Donnie Brascos. And um, they, you know, they're not going to be around forever either. I hope they are. I hope they live for a lot longer. But um kind of wanted to, like, talk to them while I still could. Oh, no, I, I can understand that. I want to ask you about the uh, Joe Pistone aspect of this, which I think is just so fascinating. Um, in general, I realize this is a, a lengthy answer, but uh, in terms of bullet points, what'd you find out? What'd you find out about your cousin Augie's killing, namely why he died? So there were different theories about why he died. I think it was, again, kind of an all of the above. I think that he... Um, there was kind of a, a long-time family tension between uh, his family, the Palmazanos, and the Balistrieri or Balistrieri family, um, dating back to a wedding that um, the Palmazanos did not want to happen. That happened, and it kind of severed some family relationships um, because of there were concerns about the family he was married that Augie's brother was marrying into. Um, so I think there was kind of a long time deep-seated simmering resentment and frustration there um, towards, you know, between those families. I think Augie also was, um, you know, he was a produce vendor. He was a tavern owner, but he was also a bookmaker and a gambler and convicted gambler. And I, but I think he kind of, um, he was very much a hustler, very hardworking, but I also think he was not a yes man. He was not somebody who was going to kiss anybody's ring and kowtow. And that is very much what um, the crime boss of Milwaukee wanted was somebody to, if he went to them and said, hey, you're gambling or you're running a tavern. I want 20% of your profits. I want 30% of your profits. I think, Augie, I'm not going to repeat what he said, but I don't because I, I, I don't want to curse. But I think he basically told him um, to um, go jump in the lake. Not not quite those words, but uh, basically like that's not happening. And I think when um, there was an attempt to kill one of his best friends and there was a car bomb placed in the car of one of his best friends. And I think Augie was very outspoken about what he thought of that attempt and the people who tried it. Uh, he was a very fiercely loyal friend and loyal person. And again, he was not um, he was not being silent with his disdain for the crime boss of Milwaukee at the time. And I think all of those things contributed to his car bombing. Um, but I think I'm trying to remember that you know, he didn't murder himself. And from what I've heard of the crime boss at the time, a man named Frank Balistrieri, he was somebody who um, did want people, he, he wanted yes men, he wanted people to do as they were told. And um, some of the people I interviewed just did not, he's not had high praise from many of the people that I've interviewed. And some people said, you know, he wanted to use Augie as an example of what happens if you don't listen to me. And um, multiple people said it was kind of, they described it as an overkill bomb, that it was a bomb to send a message. It wasn't just a quiet uh, assassination in an alley with a gun with silencers. It was a massive explosion that could have killed a lot more people. 
you mentioned Frank Balistrieri, who's a, a pretty interesting figure in the history of mafiadom, which uh, we'll, we'll come back to in a moment. What was the official story from law enforcement regarding Augie's death? Was his murder considered officially unsolved for all these decades? And is it still con- uh, considered officially unsolved? It is. Yes, that's how I was able to get um, the Milwaukee Police Department um, homicide investigation. They keep records on all unsolved homicides, and this is still unsolved. So I was able to get all of those records with redactions. But um, it's pretty wild, some of the records and the people they talk to. And I was only able to get into about half of it or maybe a fourth of it in my story. So um, hopefully we'll be able to do a podcast and explore some Mm. of the other avenues they went down. Uh, Now, you mentioned Frank Balistrieri. Uh, For people that don't know, he was the crime boss of the Milwaukee crime family from the early 60s to the mid-1990s, and in the 70s and 80s was really a central figure in the skimming of Las Vegas casinos. And it doesn't sound like there's any doubt in your mind that Frank Balistrieri was responsible for your cousin Augie's death. I'd obviously be open to hearing to somebody else with a different theory on what had happened, but everybody I spoke to basically said there was one person who could order a car bombing in Milwaukee at that time, and that was him. And uh, you think in terms of motive, well, just to clarify, again, nobody's been convicted. Sorry. Understood. <laughs> understood. Uh, yeah. But and in terms of motive, it was uh, primarily to send a message about defying Balistrieri and the Milwaukee mob. And I think, yeah, to silence somebody who was criticizing him over attempting to kill his best friend and refusing to give him a cut of his gambling profits. Uh, what's and been I the he, rea- I think he did call him a name to his face too, which probably did not go over sure. very well. Sure. W- what's been the reaction from law enforcement t- uh, to your piece since you since you published it? Has there been any talk of something like I don't know, maybe reopening the investigation, or has there been any sort of uh, official response from local or even federal law enforcement? Um, the So the investigation, as far as Milwaukee Police Department's homicide investigation, that is still technically open um, or it was never closed. I have heard from quite a few um, former um, police officers, detectives, former FBI agents um, who have all been very um, gracious and very kind with their feedback and um, all... Thankfully, all of them felt like I um, did a good job and was fair and captured their point of view accurately. Um, Nobody's called for any errors or any corrections, thankfully, or said there were any errors to the story, which is always, as a journalist, a great thing to hear. I've been pretty overwhelmed by the reaction. I am still trying to keep up with the dozens of emails and voicemails and notes that I've gotten about the story. And some people have come forward with really just amazing stories about my cousin and what a um, generous person he was. Uh, One man contacted me who's a lawyer now, but um, he was a little boy whose father passed away unexpectedly when he was quite young. And he said that they weren't planning on having a Christmas because they were Greek and it was kind of the year of mourning after right you know he died right before his father died right before Christmas and Augie apparently showed up and surprised them on their doorstep with a Christmas tree and said to his mom every boy needs a Christmas tree 
And um, I've heard from so many people with just tales of like incredible generosity from my cousin, which has been very heartwarming and also a relief because I was worried, like, what if I print this and somebody comes sure. comes to me saying he was like a really bad guy, actually, and I have not heard that at all. So um, it's been pretty overwhelming. And I am going to talk to a fairly large group of retired police officers um, coming up in the next few weeks. So I'm eager to talk to them. And I've interviewed some of them for the piece, but I was told that uh, some of the others have even more stories. So I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to that. That's wonderful. Uh, that's terrific. And, and that leads me to my next question is what's been the reaction from your family, from uh, you, you're doing this piece and revealing what you've revealed here? So luckily I was this is kind of what I was the most nervous about is just how my family was going to respond. And um, there was some discomfort initially that I know one of my sisters was worried that I, it would be dangerous for me um, to write about this or that something might happen to me or my family. Um, I know that there was just some nervousness about um, how our family would be portrayed. And I am happy to say that I think all of my family is still talking to me and I will still be having, um, you know, Easter and Thanksgiving and Christmas and holidays with my family. And um, I've actually been able to connect with some cousins and family I hadn't met before, hadn't talked to before. So I'm hoping maybe instead of dividing us, maybe it'll help bring us together a bit. So Uh, yeah, it's been good. That's terrific. And it, and are you hoping that law enforcement kind of reopens this investigation? I know it was technically never closed, but uh, maybe makes uh, determining the outcome of this more of a priority than it's been since the seventies. I I'd love to for I'd love to for more information to come out. Um, it is interesting. I've heard from quite a few people who said, you know. When I was first questioned, I was too nervous to say anything, but, you know, I'm maybe older now or I've had health conditions and feel more comfortable talking um, about what they knew or know. Um, So hopefully some more information will come forward, but I guess stay tuned. I'm not entirely sure. And just so folks know, Frank Balistrieri and maybe any others that may have played a role in uh, your cousin's killing, what became of Frank Balistrieri? So Frank um, went on, he was he was very involved um, in casino skimming, um, skimming from Las Vegas casinos, particularly with, um, you know, Alan Glick and the Stardust and that whole uh, that whole situation. Um, so after he was, he was never convicted of any, any murder charges. It was always, um, more tax evasion, extortion, gambling. Um, he did go to Kansas city after he was convicted in Milwaukee and was convicted. Um, or I think actually in that case, in the casino skimming case, I think he pled guilty cause he had already been convicted on charges here. Um, so he ended up going to prison and then he was released in, I want to say 1991 because he was having some health problems. And then he passed away in Milwaukee um, in 1993. So he has passed away. Um, a lot of the, you know, kind of main players at the time, like his enforcer or his right-hand man, he has also passed away. Um, Frank's oldest son, Joe, has has died. 
So um, quite a few people since then, you know, it was, a, it was a long time ago. So quite a few of them have died, but sure. not everybody. There are still people around with stories to tell. Did you follow, before you started working on this story, did you follow any sort of mob stuff in the Milwaukee area or were you totally new to researching this? Um, pretty much totally new to researching this. And, you know, I took my dad so seriously when he would say, like, don't fall in with the wrong crowd, that I don't think I ever saw a movie about the mafia or organized crime until... I want to say maybe when I was turning 30 or to wow. just turn 30, I was going to Sicily to report on an attempt to build the world's longest suspension bridge over the Strait of Messina and concerns that some of the money would go kind of fall into the hands of organized crime. And so many people said to me, like, you know, that scene in The Godfather or that line in The Godfather. And I'd look at them with like a blank face and have no idea what they were talking <laughs> about because I hadn't seen The Godfather. And so finally I watched it. And um, it gave me like horrible nightmares that night. I had a nightmare that I was like basically some kind of mafia lackey. And I remember being on some boat and it was basically like kill or be killed kind of thing. And I was like, God, this seems really miserable. And so I kind of like tried to read the book, which I know is a classic, but it just freaked me out that I I can't even remember if I ever finished it, but other people have said like, oh, you know how The Godfather 2 was as good as The Godfather? And I'm like, I haven't seen it. Um, so I, or Goodfellas, like people have, and again, I just, I'm like a blank slate where I really know nothing. <laughs> so it was a lot of uh, catch up for me because a lot of references or people would say like, oh, you know, if you ever went to Snugs in the Shortcrest Hotel, which was owned by, um, not technically by Frank Ballester. It was uh, like owned by his oldest son, Joe, but everyone considered it Frank's place or Ballester place. And uh, people will talk to me about snugs and I'm like, I never stepped foot in that place. You know, I just, <laughs> we, oh, my yeah. dad, I think my dad was about as law and order as you can get without actually being a cop. He was a guidance counselor and a wrestling coach and like a champion wrestler who's in like the wrestling hall of fame. But he was very much a like, um, yeah, about as long order as you can get without actually having a badge. It would be my dad. Uh, no, I totally, uh, I totally get that. I make makes makes perfect sense. Speaking of movies, though, reading your piece here, and if people haven't read it, I've linked to it on my Facebook page. They can check it out: facebook.com slash moranofan. It really does sound like something of that would be in a movie. Have you had any uh, offers or interest in making this story into a movie? Um. Like a, a fictionalized account or a... Um, well, I, I mean, hear, either, either. Yeah, I, I heard from a um, a company that seems really great and um, reached out to me about trying to develop a documentary, um, which I, I love documentaries and I, I like the idea of staying true to who my cousin was and who my family is. Um, I mean, it would be amazing to make it into a movie, you know, assuming that like somebody wouldn't want to totally fictionalize it and turn my cousin into some like hitman killer or something. Um, cause he was not. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, think we'll see. I, there were some things where when people were telling me this in interviews and particularly, um, there was at one point where, um, the FBI agents, these retired agents are talking, they're telling me about the night they broke into the Shortcrest hotel to plant listening devices. And they had a female agent wearing an earpiece 
so she could get updates on tra- on foot traffic or people coming by pretending to make out with a mail agent who was trying to, as they were trying to cut a key to break into the Shorecrest and they had decided to go in through the, through the door on this major thoroughfare because they thought if they went in through another door, it would draw more hmm. attention from any kind of security guards. So they're pretending to make out, like have a drunken make out session. And then as soon as somebody would walk by, then they go back to trying to pick the lock and then they go in and, you know, get into the basement and drill up through, I think they said 18 inches of concrete and place the microphone under the carpet and they're all excited and they turn it on and then they realize it was in the wrong place and they couldn't hear anything. So they had to like break back in and do it all again. And I was like, that sounds like a movie. Are you kidding me? And, and uh, you know, these are guys where I'm like, gosh, you are a, like, I mean, they're, they're retirees who are now getting ready for golf. But at the time I was like, you guys were badasses. Like this was <laughs> impressive. <laughs> so I did think like, gosh, that could be a movie, but um well, I guess stay tuned on that one, too. It sounds like you definitely got uh, quite an education on Milwaukee mafia history. Educate us a little bit. Uh, what did you learn, for instance, about the significance of the Third Ward? Okay, so I grew up hearing very G-rated stories of the Third Ward, and the Third Ward is um, an amazing neighborhood in Milwaukee that lines that is right along downtown. It's just like on the south end of downtown, and it's it's beautiful. It's amazing. I heard stories growing up about Grandpa Spakusa, um, who my, my uncle and, and others in my family used to call the Banana King. And others would say, like, are you related to the Banana King? And I was like, yes. Um, so he came from Sicily and, uh, like many Sicilians, got into the produce vending business and started with a push cart and would walk around the city selling fruits and vegetables and then worked his way up to a horse and wagon. I think his horse was named Dick and they would walk around and then he worked up to getting trucks and then expanded from there. And he had a cousin who was also a Spacuza in the fruit, who's in the fruit business as well. And um, it was like almost a 24 seven operation and very uh, tight quarters, a ton of Sicilian immigrants moved there and Italian immigrants moved there after there was a big fire where it had been an Irish neighborhood and nicknamed the Bloody Third. I think it had a lot of drunken brawls back then, but this fire kind of cleared it out. So because it wasn't super expensive or desirable property at the time, the uh, Sicilian immigrants and Italian immigrants moved in and it was very much a working class, um, almost 24-7 kind of produce coming in and out all hours of the day and night um, on what was known as Commission Row. But um, it used to be pretty gritty. And I think my dad kind of left that out. He would tell me like the G-rated version about cleaning his, you know, helping out at his dad's business. And my great uncle Francesco Spacuza was an impressionist painter who would paint um, and kind of painted some scenes of the third ward and the lakefront in Milwaukee. And so I heard like all of the really good, wholesome stories about it. I did not hear about like the gambling and the bookmaking and kind of a probably seedier establishments. And I did not hear stories about my cousin's tavern, for example, which apparently had great drinks and great food and great Italian sausages and fish fry on Friday nights, but also some gambling and bookmaking and horsing, like betting on horses. And uh, my dad left that part out originally, but. Now, if you come, the third ward is more um, boutiques, 
uh, craft cocktails, rooftop patios, um, really nice condos if you have enough money to afford one. I do not, I don't think, but um, it's like a very desirable kind of, I guess some might call it bougie neighborhood. Um, so it's really, it's a different ball game. I, I think if my grandparents were still alive and took a walk through the third ward, they would not recognize it anymore. But it's kind of a magical place. I love walking around there. You mentioned that the, the nickname Commission Row. What, what's Commission Row and why is it called Commission Row? So Commission Row, um, it's it's actually Broadway, but it was called Commission Row because a lot of the commission houses uh, lined Commission Row um, where the produce vendors were kind of packed into one area and um, they would basically get fruit and vegetable deliveries and then load, like unload them, load them back up onto their you know, push carts or horse and wagons or then trucks and deliver them around the city and around Wisconsin um, to restaurants, grocery stores. And so essentially that's kind of like the uh, heart of the produce business in Milwaukee at the time. So a lot of old, a lot of old Italian and Sicilian families have stories about the third ward and commission row. And I've been hearing a lot of those stories since the story published, which has been amazing. What was the influence of the mob in Milwaukee in the days when your cousin Augie was growing up and kind of making his way through the ranks, say the uh, 40s, 50s, 60s? Was the mafia a powerful presence in Milwaukee at that time? So I heard some earlier stories. My my dad, my dad was like an older dad, and he and Augie were both born in 1928. And I don't think um, there was... From what I've heard, um, some of the earlier stories were more about what what um, my aunts and uncles and dad would call the black hand. So the black hand was more kind of early extortionists or they would like send threat letters like if you don't give us X amount of money, um, we're going to burn your house down or burn your business down or burn your house down or hurt your family. Um, sometimes they would carry through on those threats, but sometimes they wouldn't. Um, and I don't think they were as, well, I, again, I, I, this was all kind of like a new thing to me, but I don't get the sense they were as organized back in like the teens, twenties as they were when it got to be more the Frank Balistrieri era where there was much, it seemed to be a much more like defined hierarchy of who is the boss, who is the enforcer. Um, but there were some interesting stories about the black hand from when they were very young. Um, and although we did not talk about Augie, there was a story that my family would tell about one of our relatives who was nicknamed the Black Crow. And she was apparently not to be messed with and was not, maybe not the nicest lady, but pretty fierce. She sounds pretty fierce to me. Like, I'm like, I kind of want to meet her if she was so alive. She apparently, like the Black Hand supposedly threatened her husband and said, like, basically, if you don't pay a protection tax, well, I don't know, kill you or so supposedly the black crow took a butcher knife and went to a card game with like the head or the, the black hand was playing like a black hand card game and card game and apparently burst in and was waving her butcher knife and said, if any of you mess with my husband again and like bit down on the knife and um, the way my aunts told it, like they thought she was nuts, but they never messed with her husband again. And then they kind of laughed and I was like, okay, that's awesome. Like, I don't know if that's true. That's going to be hard for me to fact check, but like, I, I want to believe it's true. Cause I think that's like amazing. 
<laughs> but that was all <laughs> yeah, in the sir. early days of. So I think that was like more the teens, twenties, you know, thirties. I think back. I think later on, the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties was where it was um, pretty uh, pretty organized. And I, I even like Frank Ballastri's father-in-law, who had been the boss before him. It sounds like even he was kind of like in some of the fights that they had wiretapped. He was trying to get him to not kill so many people and not want to kill so many people. And they had fights about it where um, at one point Frank said like, Oh no, I'm not, basically I'm not going to change my ways. And I, it wasn't, this isn't a direct quote, but he essentially said, no, I I want to kill more people. I wish I had. I think at one point he said he wished he had like a cemetery or a crematorium. So to make things easier, but that's a paraphrase from some articles that my colleagues wrote in the eighties. What became of Augie's four children, who I guess would all be your second cousins? Oh gosh, um, so they um, from uh, one of one of his sons, um, who was mentioned in the piece, um, his son, um, his oldest son, unfortunately passed away, and I never got a chance to meet him, which makes me very sad because it sounds like he was. I've heard from some people who knew him that he was just a wonderful person. Um, and very hardworking. Um, I think all, all of Augie's sons or all, all of Augie's children have, um, from what I understand, gone on to be um, very like uh, successful, wonderful people. And um, hopefully we'll have some family reunions and get to hang out again and kind of, uh, kind of get everybody together. The, the one downside of having a huge Italian family or a huge Sicilian family, it's a great thing, but it's tough to have a family reunion with everybody because like if you, you'd have to almost rent out like a really large hall. Um, so oh. we've had some where I think we had a hundred people and it was just like maybe first and second cousins on the Spacusa side, but I'm hoping that we can um, get everybody together and have like a Spacusa and Palmazano family reunion at some point and bring together my grandma's and grandpa's sides. Well, that would be great. And uh, you got to keep us posted on that. You you mentioned a lot of the events that you're talking about here. Obviously, the murder took place in the 19 in 1978. And a lot of the events that led up to the murder took place in the 60s and 70s. It was not as if all of the news articles about mob stuff it was back then like it is now just put up online and you could go to Google and type in a search term and then just go back and research how, you know, how certain events unfolded. Tell folks a little bit about how you do research for a story like this that largely was regional rather than national. So it's not as if all of the uh, New York Times stories about Frank Balistrieri and your cousin were digitized. How do you do research about events that took place in a pre-internet era? Yeah, so I started out, I was not sure I was going to even do the story, but I figured before I did anything, I should file a records request, uh, like a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request to the FBI to see what they had on my cousin. Um, So I went ahead and filed that, and then that was... I want to say 2019. And then um, since I work at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, obviously 2020 was a pretty busy year for news. um, And it was kind of an all hands on deck situation covering the pandemic. 
So at some point I got a disc of records and like didn't even open it for a really long time because kind of felt like the world was on fire and we were all trying to cover everything. And then I was helping with election coverage in 2020. So I was pretty busy. Um, and it almost felt like, oh gosh, this feels like such a self-indulgent, self-absorbed, like maybe, you know, maybe this isn't the right time to be doing this. And so I don't think I even looked at those records until I want to say it was 2021 because I just was so buried in other work. And I think I was a little scared of what I would find too, where again, because there was such an information void, I was like, I don't like, what if I find out my cousin killed people or was a hitman or something sure. horrible. And thankfully that didn't happen, but I just didn't know what I was going to find. And I was a little nervous about it. So I don't, maybe I think it was a combination of busyness and nervousness where it took me a while to get around to it. And before I did anything, I also wanted to talk to my siblings, which I've never, I, part of why this was the hardest story I've ever done is I've never like had to go to my siblings to get permission for them to do this. And I had um, at one point uh, somebody I worked with who isn't at the paper anymore, but he said like, well, if your siblings are against it, I mean, you're still going to do the story. Right. And I was like, Oh, you're not from an Italian family. Are you? Like, <laughs> if your siblings, I was like, no, I am not going to do the story if my siblings are against it. Like, no way. I am not going to, you know, if somebody says like, if one of my siblings had said like, please don't do this, or I don't want you to do this. Like I can't imagine doing it anyway. So luckily all of them were, you know, there were some concerns, but um, mostly supportive and, um, you know, they've put up with me for this long. So I guess they've put up with me a little more, but um, they all were were really great and um, really thoughtful and and generous with their time, even like telling stories. We kind of compared stories about what we heard because we all heard the, you know, don't talk back to the wrong person don't fall in with the wrong crowd kind of stuff, but we heard like different snippets. And at one point, my sister, one of my sisters said that my dad told her that he said, basically, Augie was a gambler. He wasn't a gangster. And I'm like, oh, I wish my dad had told me, like, I wish he told me that because I was thinking like, what if he's a gangster, you know? Right, right, sure. Again, I think, and I think maybe our understanding of gambling has changed a bit. Like it was front page news when he got busted for gambling back in the 60s, um, 70s, I want to say, 60s and 70s, I want to say. And now it's like, if everybody who gambled got car bombed in Milwaukee, we would be a much smaller city because <laughs> not of, I mean, No, honestly, you're right. You know, it's totally... Totally mainstream. Hey, um, you alluded, you mentioned Joe Pistone earlier. Uh, Folks may be familiar with Joe Pistone from the movie Donnie Brasco. Really an an incredible story of how he, as an undercover agent, infiltrated the Bonanno crime family, and it led to a a number of prominent arrests and prosecutions. Joe Pistone is still alive to this day, still talks about a lot of mafia-related issues. What did Joe Pistone have to do with the Milwaukee mob and Frank Balistrieri and any of the incidents that you explored? It's crazy. I didn't know. I mean, I knew of Joe Pistone, Donnie Brasco. I didn't realize he had worked in Milwaukee because I knew so little about the mafia until one of my coworkers was like, you know, he was here and it got, it wasn't in the movie, but if you read his book um, about 
his his book about Donnie Brasco and his undercover work, like a bunch of it's about Milwaukee and Frank Bell's jury. And I had no idea. So I immediately went and got the book and am reading it. And he mentions my cousin. He writes about Frank Balistrieri. He writes about his work here. And I was like, I got to talk to this guy. But um, basically, he came, he, was, he came to Milwaukee um, in the 1970s. Um, he was here in 1978, the year my cousin was killed. And the part of the reason was he was so successful when it came to his work infiltrating organized crime, La Cosa Nostra, the mafia, whatever you want to call it, that um, he started getting kind of sent around the country to help other undercover agents um, trying to build cases um, in their areas. So there was an agent here, Gail Cobb, he went by Ty, and apparently by all accounts, an amazing agent, um, but he was having a bit of trouble getting traction with his um, investigation, and he was posing as Tony Conti, a um, new vending machine company owner, and he wasn't really getting anywhere, and or he didn't think he was getting anywhere, so they sent in Joe, and Joe kind of, the way he talks about it, he starts like laying a trap kind of where he started um, kind of floating Milwaukee and kind of dropping dropping hints about this to um, Lefty, his, um, you know, his close associate in New York, and start mentioning, oh, this guy has this friend, you know, in Milwaukee, he wants to try to get into vending machines. And uh, he writes, it's, it is like a scene out of a movie. Um, he writes how Lefty, they're, they're eating, and Lefty like slaps, like slams down his fork and is like, where'd you say your friend was? And Joe's like, Milwaukee. And uh, he's like, Milwaukee, you know, they're crazy out there. They'll kill you. They'll bomb you. Like, tell your friend to get out of that city. And that's not a direct quote, but um, he basically was like, oh, they're not messing around Milwaukee. They're vicious. They're tied to Chicago. And so Joe was like, well, you know, uh, why don't I go try to help him out? So Lefty's like, well, they tried to kind of form a marriage between crime families with New York and Milwaukee. So Joe came here um, as an undercover agent to help Ty build his case and um, was extremely successful at infiltrating the crime family here to the point where um, he was offered a job by Frank to kind of run gambling operations for, I think it was the fall, maybe the fall football season of 1978. And um, there were some comments made to Joe and his fellow undercover agent, Ty Cobb, uh, who was posing as Tony Conti, that ended up being used in some of those federal criminal trials, including one led by a very uh, determined prosecutor here, John Frankie, where um, Ty heard Frank Ballastery say of my cousin uh, that he was arrogant and called him a name to his face and now can't find his skin. And Joe also heard he, he... also heard um, Frank talking about stool pigeons and how you can tell who's a stool pigeon because they have a remote starter in their car and was kind of making cracks about my cousin's murder. Um, and apparently the other under, undercover agent got a remote starter after my cousin was killed because he was so nervous about it and uh, was very concerned that Frank was going to realize he had a remote starter in his car, which it sounds like he never did. But wow. 
you know, obviously this was, uh, as you alluded to, the first real deep dive you did into any stories about the mob and its incredible history in Milwaukee. Did this, did you find this piqued your interest a little bit? Could you see yourself doing other stories about the mob and mob history in Milwaukee that don't necessarily involve family members of yours? Um, maybe I, I, this one really kept me up at night and I was pretty stressed. I think it was partly, um, the family connection and partly just not sure how my siblings and other family members were going to respond. Um, I definitely like it's, um, I'm really proud of the work that I've done on it. I, I think, um, maybe it's a long way of saying maybe, I think for me, I was always very um, uncomfortable the way organized crime sometimes gets glamorized as like, oh, these are men of honor and they only kill people who have it coming. And they're kind of these Robin Hoods and looking out for Sicilians. And that just wasn't my experience. In my mind, I was like, no, a lot of the people, a lot of their victims were Italians and Sicilians, and I didn't. It didn't seem very honorable to blow somebody up who was trying to go to work in the morning, and so I think maybe, but I would want to make sure it's not like a kind of glamorizing right. sure, or anything sure. that's um, making them sound like total heroes. Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, lastly, I know uh, because you didn't see a mob movie until your later years, you're probably far from a mob movie expert. But I'm curious, for people that are interested in learning more about the world of the Milwaukee mob, there have been so many movies made about New York crime families, the Vegas mob, uh, even even Detroit and events surrounding Jimmy Hoffa. In your research or in your conversations with people, did you get any good re- recommendations for a movie about the Milwaukee mob? Because I'll be honest, I don't know that I know of one. I'm curious if you do. I know some documentaries have been made. Um, I think there was just one that aired, although I think that was more like on Al Capone and mentioning that he liked to get away to Wisconsin to relax or something. Um, But I, I know some documentaries have been made that I've been wanting to check out. I can't think of any like blockbuster type movie about Milwaukee. And I don't know if that's because uh, Milwaukee wasn't as famous as Chicago or New York when it came to organized crime or because we're kind of seen as flyover country sometimes where we're not the East Coast and we're not the West Coast. And um, I remember being in New York and people would say to me like, oh, you're from you're from Minnesota, right? And I'd say, no, Milwaukee. <laughs> and then they'd say, oh, Michigan, right? Like, the, you know, and they could never remember where I was from. And so finally I started saying, I'm from near Chicago. And then they'd remember near Chicago. So maybe uh, maybe that's part of it is that people kind of forget about little old Milwaukee here. But we're a great city. So uh, maybe I, there'll be more movies made about us in the future, not just organized well, crime, but. Yeah, I'm I'm a big Happy Days fan and a Laverne and Shirley fan. So I, I Milwaukee has nothing but fond memories in terms of the pop culture and uh, its place in my brain. Hey, uh, Mary, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much. And uh, congratulations on a terrific story. And if people haven't read it yet, again, uh, the headline is my cousin was killed by a car bomb in Milwaukee. A mob boss was the top suspect. Now I'm looking for answers. And uh, you could check out all of Mary's work in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Mary, I hope we can talk again. I hope so too. Thanks so much, Frank.
Thank you. If somebody sent you this podcast, hopefully you will subscribe. Just look for the Racket Report on any podcast app and do us a favor. Feel free to uh, send this along to someone else. You can also give us a five-star rating on any podcast service and a nice review. It'll really help uh, spread the visibility of the podcast. And if you want to uh, offer any feedback on any portion of our discussion, you can email me. My email is frank.morano. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.